0: Uh, part five. Today we're given this title, Good Ambition. All right? And this is part of the, this Whatever You Do series. And I want to just ask you the question if someone described you as ambitious, how would you feel? Someone kind of came along and said, and talking of you, said, he or she, very ambitious. How would you feel about that? I guess in many ways how you'd feel if someone described you as ambitious depends on your personality type or the kind of role that you're in perhaps. But ambition in our culture, very much we have conflicting thoughts and feelings and emotion about the whole thing of ambition. So we admire ambition ...in our sportsmen and our sportswomen. We admire it. We think it's a good thing. In fact, often if you're a fan of a particular football team... ...you might be quick to criticise the lack of ambition... ...in your club side, in your team... ...particularly if you're an Arsenal fan. All right, The whole thing, just a lack of of ambition there. We admire it in sportsmen and sportswomen. That's one for you, Frank. We admire it in sportsmen and, and sportswomen... ...and yet we despise it in other people. Maybe, let's say, our politicians... We don't like so much the idea that they're ambitious. We don't like it in other people. Ambition in many ways in our culture has got a bit of a bad reputation. It means ruthless. It means cutthroat. It means overly competitive. It means greedy. It means manipulative. It means I'll stab you in the back to get to where I want to be. And we don't need to look very far to see the wreckage of ambition in our culture. Ambition is Lance Armstrong, who wanted to be the best in the world, and so he cheated by doping to get to it. Ambition is other sportsmen and women cheating. So hold from a few years ago now, the story of Tonya Harding, who had her main rival, Nancy Kerrigan, beaten up, like physically, literally beaten up, so that she couldn't compete in the National Figure Skating Championships, and with her main rival literally beaten up and on the sidelines, Tonya Harding was free to compete and win. We see that and we think, whoa, that is not good. Ambition is the greed that we see that exploits the poor for financial gain. Ambition is the politician who stabs you in the back and, 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 and gets ahead by manipulating things. We've seen that in our own politics not too far away, not too uh, fairly recently. Ambition is the wrecked family because the husband or the wife gave everything in pursuing this thing at the expense of this thing. Ambition is the dictator who's sending nations to war for personal gain. And let's really be clear, from from this kind of thing perspective, selfish ambition, if you like, from a biblical perspective, is definitely wrong. Paul in Philippians chapter two verse three says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing. Jeremiah forty five five says plainly, do you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. And yet, the Bible is also very clear that there is another kind of ambition that is both good and is right see, it was ambition that led David to extend and expand the borders of Israel. It was ambition that led Jabez to praying boldly that God would bless him. It was ambition that led Solomon to make a bold request before the Lord for more wisdom. It was ambition that led Solomon to rebuild, to build the temple. It was ambition that led Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Ambition, if we want to define it, is is a strong desire strong determination to do or to achieve something. And we're all ambitious. Ambition is not restricted to a certain personality type. And here's the thing. Ambition is not a dirty word. From a biblical perspective, when ambition is self, it ends badly. And when ambition is driven by self, it's unbearable. But when ambition is godly and driven by the Spirit, Then it becomes unbeatable. And my contention today, with all the caveats of avoiding like the plague, anything remotely like selfish ambition, it's my contention that we need as individuals and corporately as a church to be more ambitious. More like Jesus who was arguably the most ambitious person that ever walked the planet. He lived with a a crystal clear will and desire and determination. We read in John 4, verse 34, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We need to be more like the Apostle Paul, who before his his conversion, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he lived with ambition. He was zealous to maintain his traditions, and he persecuted the church because of his zeal. And here's what's fascinating and so interesting about Paul, Saul of Tarsus. When he became Paul, when he was converted, when he became a Christian, God did not take away his ambition. God just redirected it. He didn't remove his ambition. He redirected it for God's bigger and God's better purposes, so much so that in Romans chapter 15, he writes, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Ambition wasn't just something before he became a Christian. Okay, then, after Christian, no, no, not so good now. It was redirected ambition. And ambition, rightly directed, is a good thing. In fact, I'd go so far as to say it's a virtue. And like so many things that, that God intended as good, Sin has corrupted and distorted ambition. And so, yes, we need to avoid sinning with our ambition, but we don't need to avoid ambition itself. We need to redeem ambition. We need to rescue ambition. We live in a world that is desperately in need of people to live with good, right, God-honoring ambition. We need people who are full of godly ambition. We ought to be a very, very ambitious people. Ambitious, of course, in the godly sense. So what does godly ambition look like? Well, really very simply, godly ambition looks like Jesus at the center and not me at the center. When I'm at the center of everything, it becomes corrupted and it becomes distorted. Now, of course, that is so easy to say. And no one was expecting me to say anything different. Oh, of course, yeah, but let's all go home then. It's so easy to say but in reality, this is way more complex. You see, the problem with selfish ambition is that selfish ambition is really very sneaky. And it's very sneaky because sin is very sneaky. And like all good things that potentially uh, that have the potential to be distorted, we need to learn how to recognize what that distortion looks like. And ambition is sneaky because... Ambition has what we might describe as an aggressive distortion, but it also has what we might describe as a passive distortion. And we often find the aggressive one really very easy to spot and the passive one harder to spot. Let me explain what I mean. Think about a virtue. Think about love. What's the opposite of love? Our natural inclination straight away, thinking of love, the opposite of love is hate. Hate. It's like an aggressive distortion of love. The opposite of it is hate. But the opposite of love is, is more than just hate. Hate's an aggressive distortion. A passive distortion of love is actually apathy. So the opposite of love is not just hate. The opposite of love is apathy. I just don't care. It's not that I don't love someone not just because I, I hate them, but I just, I just don't care enough about them. That's why I don't love them. And when it comes to ambition then, It's very easy to spot the aggressive distortion. It's very easy to spot what that looks like because it often looks like selfishness or pride or exploitation or manipulation or cheating or lying or neglecting family in some way. And even if we refuse to acknowledge those things, we know deep down that they're there. Often easy to spot that. But we also need to spot the passive distortions of ambition. And they're harder to a spot because they so often don't fall into what we might describe as sin. What do they look like? Well, the passive distortions look like fear of failure. They look like purposelessness. They look like having low opinions of ourselves and the thing that God has given us. Sometimes look like laziness. Sometimes look like withholding and holding back from doing something. Sometimes looks like a lack of faith. Sometimes look like insecurity and discontentment. And they're the passive corruptions of ambition. It's why in James chapter 3, James says that selfish ambition is the root of all kind of sin. Because it leads, James says, to, to exploitation and to bitter jealousy and to rivalry and strife and into constant dissatisfaction. And that's because, and this is so important that we get our heads around and understand this, that's because at its root, sin... At the very heart of what it is, at its root, sin, before it's anything that we actually do, at its root, sin is self-centeredness. Sin is living as if it's all about me. Sin is living as if and acting as if I'm God. That's why God says in his word, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not because everyone has done bad things, although we we have, but at root, at heart, we're living as if we're in control, as if we're king, as if I'm God, as if I decide what I do and what happens with my life. I'm in control. And this, when it comes to ambition, Manifests itself aggressively speaking as pride. It's all about advancing myself and my kingdom, living in such a way as to make sure that I have whatever it is I want. I do whatever it is I want to do. I uh, behave in such a way it takes me where I want to get to. It's the aggressive distortion, it's pride. But it also manifests itself passively speaking as fear and as insecurity, because they're all about protecting myself. Protecting my kingdom. And pride and insecurity are two sides of the same coin. And they're both selfish ambition. And we're selfishly ambitious in terms of either advancing ourselves with pride or protecting ourselves because of fear and insecurity. And Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, whether that's aggressively or passively. So our selfish ambition, whether they're about advancing ourselves or they're about protecting ourselves. They need to die in order for us to be truly ambitious. So what does godly ambition look like? Well, it looks like three things. First thing is it looks like godly ambition looks like being an eight cow wife. You heard that right. One or two of you who have switched out for the last few moments have just gone, sorry, what, eight what? Eight hey, cow wife. You heard me right. It looks like being an eight-cow wife. Let me explain. There's a guy called Johnny Lingo, right, who's a character in a story written by a lady called Patricia McGee in the 1960s, 1965, something like that. And Johnny was a a Polynesian. He was one of the sharpest traders in the South Pacific Islands. He was strong. He was bright. He was rich. He was a leader among the people on the island of Nurabandi. And on the adjacent island of, of Kinawata, there lived a woman named Sarita. Now she, just to be blunt, she was no looker. She was plain and she was skinny and she wasn't anything to look at. And she walked the village with a sort of fretful disposition. Her shoulders were slooped downwards as if she carried some kind of unforeseen burden. But for reasons known only to poets and prophets, Johnny loved Sarita and he wanted her as his wife. And it was customary among the people in those times to, uh, on the islands for a man to buy his wife from her father. So, two or three cows secured you an average wife. All right? You had two or three cows, that kind of got you an average looking wife. Adding an extra cow would get you an upgrade. All right? You know, I now start to, to talk in someone who is a little bit more attractive. And if you add in kind of two more onto that, you would get a head turner. All right? You would get like a really straight up, wow, she is, yeah. Now, in a transaction that absolutely shocked every single person on the island, Johnny shelled out not one, not two, not three or four, but eight cows for Sarita. Why on earth pay quadruple the rate for somebody that looks like Sarita? It was really very simple. Johnny wanted her to know that in his eyes, she was worth more than any other woman. It was a statement from him of her value. To Johnny, she was an eight-cow wife. And word of this unprecedented bride spread far and wide. But that's not the end of the story. Because one day, a visitor came who heard the story of Johnny's marriage and wanted to see the bride for herself. She couldn't quite believe that someone would do that. And when she did, she couldn't believe her eyes. Sarita was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, the woman reflected The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes, all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. Sarita became what Johnny declared her to be, an eight-cow wife. She was walking worthy of her call. Godly ambition looks like being an eight-cow wife. (laughs) Or to put it another way, godly ambition begins not with what we do, but with who we are. See, Paul in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live in a way worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let's just think about ambition for a moment. What ambition is? Ambition is about achieving something. Ambition is about wanting to be successful, which is why so many of us are frustrated with our lives because we don't think we're successful. Admittedly, one or two of us have been successful, and so we become Billy Big Head straight away, and we think we've got it all sorted because I'm successful at this. I'm great. Look at me. I'm amazing, and we've allowed success in this area to get to us in this area, and we think we're amazing at everything. We all know one or two people like that. But for most of us, We live with a nagging sense of a lack of fulfillment. We have a a low sense of self-esteem or we have a low opinion of ourselves because we don't consider ourselves to be successful. And so we get frustrated that we're not more fruitful or more successful in life. Or we make the other statement and go, right, I'm not, so I'm going to be ruthless in being successful. Ask yourself the question, why do we need to be successful? For most of us, the answer is we need to be successful in order to validate ourselves, in order to give ourselves a sense of worth, in order to give ourselves an identity, in order to give ourselves a sense of of meaning and significance. That's why we're full of selfish ambitions. Because we want to be successful because those are the things that give us identity and significance and worth and meaning. And don't think, by the way, that ambition is just for type A guys who are aggressive leader types. And I'm not like that, so ambition is not an issue for me. We are all ambitious because we all have desires and dreams and things that we want. We all have goals and we're ambitious to achieve them. It might be that we want to get married. It might be that we want to have kids. It might be that we we want to have our kids turn out well. It might be that we want to have a comfortable life and all that kind of stuff. Whatever it is, we are ambitious for those things because we think that they give us meaning and the satisfaction that our hearts crave. And that's why godly ambition begins not with what we do, but with who we are. You see, the gospel is not a message of Jesus died on a cross and rose again, forgive you of your sins, and now you need to work really, really hard and put in a whole load of effort in order to be like Jesus. The gospel is the message that Jesus died in your place and now your life is hidden in Christ and his perfect life and his perfect righteousness and his perfect significance and meaning and worth has been credited to you. You've been changed completely. You are a new creation and so now be it. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Our worship ended with a brilliant word from Ephesians, reminding us this, this very thing. But chapter 4, walk in the manner with which you've been called. It follows chapters 1 to 3, which are just full of Paul declaring who you now are in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 4, you are chosen in Christ. Verse 5, you've been predestined for adoption. Verse 11, you have been given an inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 6, you've been raised up with Christ. Verse 16, you have been reconciled back to God. Chapter 3, verse 8, you've been blessed with unsearchable riches in Christ. Go on this afternoon and read Ephesians 1 to 3 very slowly. God saved us and adopted us and forgave us and declared us righteous in his sight and altered our desires so that they bend towards him now. And he's added us into his family and he's made us part of his great story and his plans and purposes on the earth. He's made us ambassadors. He's made us those who shine for him. And then he says to us, now become what I have made you and declared you to be. Realize it. Know it. Believe it. Because it changes who you are. I'm now an eight cow wife. I'm now an eight cow wife. I no longer have a dull and veiled face. But now with the veil removed, I'm beholding the glory of the Lord. And I'm being transformed from one image and one degree of glory to the next. I now shine bright. Not because of anything I do, but because of who I now am in Christ. I am a new creation. I once was lost, now I'm found. I once was blind, now I see. I once had no hope, now I have hope. I once was purposelessness, full of purposelessness, now I have a purpose. I once was looking for external things to validate me and prove my worth. Now I recognize in Christ I've received all the things I'm looking for. See, as an eight cow wife, my identity, my security, my worth is found not in what I do, but in who I am. And so my ambition now is freed from the shackles of pride. I have no need to advance myself because I'm caught up in something far more glorious and significant than myself and my tiny earth-bound temporary ambitions that in a hundred years no one will ever think anything of or remember at all. I'm freed from self-centeredness. Because my purpose, my mission, my life now has been captured in the theme from John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. Because I'm found in him. And I now realize that everything that God's blessed me with, every gift I have, every talent I have, every, everything I have, material possession, whatever it is, has been given unto me, granted to me in order that I might be a blessing to others. So I don't live with that sense of self-pride anymore. I live for his glory. And my ambition, similarly, is also freed from the shackles of fear. I have no need to protect myself anymore. I have no need to be insecure anymore because the most precious thing that I have is the endless gift of the gospel. And there's no risk in that which you cannot lose. My life is hidden in Christ. It's not about me. It's about him. And he is ever for me. So whom then shall I fear? And this frees me to be incredibly ambitious, not for my kingdom, but for his. Godly ambition, then, before it's anything else starts with an ambition to be who God has made me to be. And the overflow of that is then into what I do. So Paul writing in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Aspire to, make it your ambition to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands. What's it look like? Well, now it frees me, aspires me to to live a quiet life, to be content and joyful in the unknown. I don't need to have the accolation and the awards and the applause from everybody else because I get it from the one person that really does matter. And I'm content in that. And so if God chooses to see it fit, to raise me to a position of prominence, whether it's as a sports superstar, I wish, or as it's um, anything else in prominence, whether it's in business or in church or whatever it is, then so be it. That's great. And if God never chooses to raise me up into that point then no one ever knows, do you know what? That is great as well. Mind your own affairs. So often misquoted. My, uh, mind your own business. Who are you to talk into? And that doesn't mean that. What it, what it means is get, stay in the lane that God has given you. Give your full attention to the things that God has called you to. Stop comparing yourself to someone else who's running in that lane. And My life's not like that. I should be like, no, because God has called you into this one. And so live it fully content that he is ever for you. Free from having to make something of myself because this is what he's called me to. I don't need to look that way. I don't need to look that way. I don't need to look that way. I just keep my eyes fixed on him and run in this lane. And then work with your hands at it. Whatever it is God has called you to, work hard. Each of us has the temptation to refuse to get involved in much of anything. We often have the temptation just to be a bit lazy with it. Paul says, no, 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 work hard with the things that I have called you to that I've given you. So the second thing that godly ambition looks like is it looks like a recognition that God has gifted and called me. God's given me these talents, these gifts, these abilities, and now he calls me to use them for his glory. We've heard this so many times, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so now I begin to consider how my talents, how my abilities, my relationships, my possessions, my uh, education, my time, my money, my whatever it is, can be used for God's glory and leverage for the advancement of God's kingdom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about living by faith on this earth and not by sight. Believing that, that whatever we do with our lives, when it's done in faith, is in some way bringing glory to God and advancing his purposes on the earth. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, it says, we make it our aim to please him. Which means in, in everything I do, everything that I am, everything that I have, I'm to take and to use it and to be very ambitious for him. John stop. He was a pastor, a writer, he's dead now, and he he said this, ambitions for self may be quite modest. Ambitions for God, however, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? No. Once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor and accorded this true praise, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of the gospel, for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere in everything that we do. You know, this isn't just about what we do in these four walls. I hope you're kind of getting that over these last few weeks. This is about whatever it is that you do, the Mondays to Saturdays. So what does godly ambition look like? Well, it looks an awful lot like what we see in Matthew 25 with the parable of the talents. In Matthew 25, uh, in verse 14, a man calls his servants together and says he's going on a journey and he gives them his property. To one, he gives five talents, another two, and another one, each according to their ability, and then he goes away. And the one who has five goes and works really hard and makes five more talents and it's exactly the same with the one who has two talents. But the one with one talent, out of fear, digs up the ground and hides the talent. Verse 19. Now long, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. To the one who had received five talents and produced five more, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Same with the guy with two But the guy with one who hid it in the ground, verse 26, you wicked and slothful servant. Rewards comes from the master from taking what they've been freely given and using it for the master's good pleasure and for his kingdom. They have a natural ambition, being their, their master's servants, to take what they have and make the most out of it. They work really very hard with an ambition to be fruitful with what they've got, and they re- get rewarded of it. The criticism of the guy with one talent is not that he tried and he failed, but they didn't even try and do anything with what the master had given him. And there's just a couple of amazing things I absolutely love about this story. And the first is this, that the master gives them the talents. This is not a debt, It's not, I have to do this or else God's going to be really cross with me. I'm in his debt and I have to repay him and I have to work really very, very hard to prove myself worthy of the debt. You're never going to repay the debt of what God has done for you. So quit trying. The things that God has given you and gifted you are not debts to be repaid. They're gifts to be used. And so ambition is merely recognizing the gracious free gift of God in giving you talents and abilities and skills and the like and using them for the master's joy, for God's glory. Ambition really is just realizing the gracious act of God in my life. He's given me the ability to do this and safe in the knowledge that I'm I'm safe and secure in Christ, I'm now going to use my talents for him. They're a gift. Use them second thing I love about this story is that Jesus says the man went away for a long time. Ambition is not satisfied quickly. With me at the center, ambition is a quick thing. I want it and I want it now and I'll do everything I can to get to where I am. And if I don't get there quickly, I've somehow failed. With Jesus at the center, we recognize we're playing the long game here. We need to take the long view of how we work out our ambition in the day-to-day settings of the world. It's why whatever we do in the ordinary, everyday moments are so very important because that's where most of our life is lived. And when I realize these things, I'm now free to take some risks. I'm free to step out in faith and try some things for the glory of God because God's given me these gifts and he wants me to use them. And if I'm using them for his glory, I don't need to worry about being arrogant. And so if you're very gifted at making money, well, go and make it. Go and make lots of it and go and be very generous with it for the advancement of the kingdom. If you're gifted in whatever field it is, whatever you find yourself doing, whatever you're going to be doing tomorrow morning, if you're gifted in that area, be very ambitious to get to the place where your talents will take you for the glory of God so that you can use your position to influence positively the culture around you, the company you're in, the situation and context you're in, to redeem it for the benefit of others and for the glory of Jesus Christ. It also secu- frees me because I, I can't lose what really matters. I'm free to have a go and try my best with the things God has given me with because the one thing that really matters I can never lose. And this transforms the way I live. Because it shapes my attitudes and my thoughts. Because the five-talent guy isn't better than the two-talent ga- guy. He isn't superior any, in any way. He just has five talents and he has two it's not that the five-talent guy is better and the two-talent guy is worse. So if I'm the, the five-talent guy and I've been given lots of abilities and lots of gifts and I'm really talented at stuff, I don't need to feel superior about it, but nor do I need to be apologetic about it. I'm sorry I'm really good at this and you're not. That's not the way it works. And if I'm the two-talent guy, I don't need to be looking enviously at the five-talent and going, I wish I could be like them. I wish I was, I wish I was a five-talent. I'm only a two-talent, No, because it's not inferior. They both, we see it here, they both get the well-done, good and faithful servant. They both enter into their master's joy. It's not about who's more gifted. It's about what you do with the things God has gifted you with. It also transforms my practices, how I live. It's why I want to be in community with people who know me and help me. Because they help me keep my motives pure. And they correct me when it's, that's beginning to sound an awful lot like selfish ambition, James. Why are you wanting to do that? Why are you making that decision? People who know me see it and spot the aggressive distortions of ambition and the passive ones in my life. Actually, James, you've got more. You need to step up and use it. Don't be, don't be kind of self-modest there. You can bring that. You can move, move, move forward into those things. Oh, no, people will think this of me. Who cares what people think of you? God's given you that. Move forward in it. Also gives me a sober judgment on whether I'm a five-talent guy or a two-talent guy, because sometimes I think I'm five and I'm only two. And others around me, like, I think you think maybe it'd be better if we do this. Similarly, sometimes I think, well, I'm only a two, and the guys excuse me, I'm going, no, you're a five. You can do this. And it shapes how I pray as well. I ask big things of God. Story of Alexander the Great, and one of his soldiers came to him. And put a request that Alexander would pay for his daughter's wedding. And Alexander's right-hand man was like, how cheeky is this guy? Kick him out. This is terrible. And Alexander considered the request and went, do you know what? I'm so impressed that this guy recognizes how wealthy I am and how much I have. And the fact that he asked for it, I'm going to pay for his wedding. We're not coming before a stingy God. Let's come and ask big things. We're not coming before a God who's a bit like, how dare you ask that that might happen his glory he's a God who has everything let's come and be big in the way we ask and the final thing running out of time just finish real quick with this godly ambition is hungry for more and yet it's happy with less because my life's now fixed fixated on the glory of God with him right at the center I'm being who God has made me to be I have a big ambition I'm hungry for more and yet I'm also contented I'm happy with the less. Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. I have learned, Paul says, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Brought low, uh, sorry, abound is when you win the contract. Abound is when you're engaged. Abound is when you get the raise. Abound is when you're pregnant after you've been praying for years. Abound is when you're seemingly successful. Brought low is when you face failure, when you get overlooked for promotion, when you're still single, when you're knocking on the door for years and years and years and it just doesn't seem to open and your knuckles are now so bloody and you're saying, why is this door shut? God, I'm I'm qualified for this. What's wrong? Well, verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I love this phrase. I have learned. I find this so comforting. It wasn't natural to Paul. It wasn't some little benefit that was included in his uh, conversion. It wasn't some little neat app that he just downloaded of the Holy Spirit and is oh, everything's fine now. He learned it. I've got to learn. I've got to teach my heart. I've got to remind my soul. It is well in moments of plenty and moments of need. In verse 12, there's a secret to all this. He doesn't just tell us that he's content, and you should be too, so get on with it. He's going to tell us how. He said there's a secret to it. We'll sort of lean in, like, listen, what's the secret? And he gives us one of the most misquoted Bible verses in the whole of the New Testament. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do it all. What Paul's showing us about himself is pretty remarkable. He was disappointed, but he didn't grow bitter. And he didn't give up on his dreams. A lot of times, we've had a dream disappointed, and so we try and pay God back in some way, "Fine God, I'll just be normal. I guess that'll make you happy then. I won't step out again. Or we go into self-protection mode. And you kind of think, even though you never verbalize it, I just can't handle getting disappointed again, so I'm just going to aim at nothing because I know I can hit that. And then I won't feel like I've let myself down or anyone else down. And so we settle. Paul doesn't settle. He's a man who is disappointed in his ambitions, but he's not given up on his dreams. He's disappointed without disillusioned. He's genuinely sad at his losses, but he's not in despair. He's hungry for more, yet he is happy with less. He wants to preach to large audiences, but he's content to sit in prison. He's not sitting there brooding over the question. By now, God, I should have been, well, God, what's wrong with me? Or what did I do wrong? Or what did you do wrong? And he's not taking it out on those around him. A lot of us do that. It's not working in this area of our lives, so we take it out on people around us in that area of our lives. There are a whole load of people who have let Paul down. He doesn't take it out on them. How you handle disappointment is the test of whether your ambitions are selfish or godly. How do you handle it when you haven't made the million? How do you handle it when you haven't got married or you don't have kids and you didn't get the promotion or the pay rise that you wanted? Do you get mad at God? Do you give up on your dream? Do you despair about yourself? Blame it on others. Paul could face disappointment because his ambitions were godly ambitions. And they were godly ambitions because they were rooted in Christ. One of the biographers of Jonathan Edwards, not the triple jumper, the proper one. He said of him, his happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. Wow. His happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. Paul's was too. Is yours. Is mine. What do you have to do to obtain to find what you have to obtain to find joy, what can 't be taken away because without that you 'll go into despair. Christ is the only reliable, lasting anchor for your contentment. Brothers and sisters, we 're eight cow wives. We're those who are secure in Christ. Nothing can pluck us from his hands. Everything we need, his hand will provide. We're free then from pride and we're free from fear and insecurity. We're living solely for the glory of God and we're free to be ambitious. And more than free, we should be incredibly ambitious for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Whatever it is that you do is the way that you play your part in being ambitious for the glory of God. So let's live free from self-ambition. Eyes fixed on Jesus, incredibly ambitious to be who he has made us to be. And then we do out of that. Safe and secure that nothing can stop us. Nothing can pluck us from his hand. There's no reason to be fearful. There's no reason to hold ourselves back. There's no reason to withhold anything. We live it all out for the glory of God.